I come back here to Los Angeles and the car drives itself automatically. I know where I am. It's like I'm home all the time. I don't really know where I live. I live in London. I, that's my geographical address, I guess. But I'm always here in my heart because this is where I met myself. This was the greatest moment of my life. 16 years ago was the greatest singular event in my life to discover that I was an alcoholic and that I always had been. And I found myself here and uh, it's been the most miraculous event of my life. And it gets better and better and deeper and deeper. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 33. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober since October 10th of the year 2000. I'm a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I am glad you're here, and I hope that you find what you're looking for. I'd like to move on to a couple of announcements. I want to remind everybody that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions at mike at SoberShares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone button that I can play back on our next episode. I think it'd be really cool to hear your own voice on the next episode of Sober Share, so leave me a voicemail. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep sober shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses. I'd like to mention three listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move our project forward. The first one was T, first initial T, last name Beckett. Thank you so much for your donation. It's going to go a long, long way in helping us reach our goals. Second one I'd like to mention is Roy H. Thank you for your donation. Much appreciated, brother. And also Mr. Moreland. Thank you, Mr. Moreland, for helping us financially so we can keep this podcast rolling without ads. I want to assure you that everything we do here at Sober Shares uh, is to help the recovering alcoholic and addict. And also people out there that are just curious about sobriety and also people out there that are listening to this podcast that just want to be straight up entertained. I'd like to uh, tell you guys a little bit of feedback that we've received via Apple Podcast, which is the largest distribution network for podcasts in the world at this point. We got some feedback from... East Bay Liz, that's her handle on Apple Podcast. East Bay Liz says, great podcast. I love listening to this show. My schedule can be erratic and I drive for work. So plugging into this podcast gives me all the joy and gratitude. Thank you, East Bay Liz. Appreciate that. Our next feedback comes from Desiree C from our Facebook group. She says, thanks. I'm always looking for inspiration and I enjoy the big book and this show is proof that the 12 steps work. So thank you very much, Desiree C. Glad you're out there listening to us. I want to tell you a little bit about our guest today. This episode was recorded from the podium at the Pacific Group in Los Angeles, California. This speaker got sober on December the 29th. 1975 and is a longtime sober individual in the program you might or might not recognize his voice he's got a pretty distinct accent so i really really hope that you guys enjoy this episode 
Good evening, my name is Tony. I'm an alcoholic. It's a great privilege to share at the Pacific Group. I haven't been here for ten years. That's to forgive me. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. Because <laughs> um, I went back to England to live. I've been back in California, in Los Angeles, for the last five months working. And I feel it's almost like it is my home in a way. Though I was born across the water in Wales. I'm Welsh. I suffered the Celtic disease of alcoholism. I thought being Welsh was the reason I was what I felt like all those years. And in 1975, in December 29th, I was taken to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in Pacific Palisades. And the most extraordinary thing happened to me, which changed my whole life. I was then 37 years of age. I was about two days before my natal birthday. And what happened on that night, a man called George C. picked me up and took me to my first meeting. I'd phoned AA Central Office that morning. I went in to see them, because I didn't want them to come and see me with their raincoats and Bibles. And... <laughs> so that's what I thought it would be like. Smiles and charity and nice, gentle, low ladies, you know, with cups of tea and cookies and all that. And I didn't want any of that. So I went in to see them. And I met a woman who was managing the office that morning. Uh, she was answering the phones. Her name was Dorothy. And uh, she talked to me for about 10 minutes or 20 minutes. And she said a few things which really bombarded my mind and opened my mind up and she said why didn't you just come home and rest because you don't ever need to drink again and she said why didn't you just trust in God and I'd been what I thought was I thought I'd been an atheist or an agnostic all my life because that's what I was brought up I was brought up neither Catholic or Protestant or anything like that um, maybe I had an advantage my father told me there was no God so I believed him and I, I felt tremendous loss all my life and that morning in central office in West Los Angeles, in the West of central office, that woman, Dorothy, she died some years ago. In fact, she wasn't an alcoholic. Uh, she was looking after the phones in central office because she liked to work for AA and uh, because her husband was a member of this program. Anyway, she said, you know, why didn't you trust in God? And something opened in my mind, in my heart, in my whole being. And I guess I experienced a tremendous surrender. I walked down on the street uh, on Westwood Boulevard and everything seemed to light up. And the big powerful voice said, it's all over, now you can start living. And it's all been for a purpose. I knew that something had happened to me. And uh, so much so that I went and called in on, on a priest on the way back to my apartment and uh, sat in his office and told him I found God. He said, well, congratulations. So I said, <laughs> he said, how did you manage to find God? I said, well, I'm an alcoholic. I've just joined AA. He said, well, that's good. He said, they'll help you. I said, is it a religious program? He said, I don't think so. He said, but you know, you'll find help there. He said, they're all alcoholics. He said, they're all a little crazy. He said, but they'll all help you. And that night, this man, George C., picked me up and took me to my first meeting in Pacific Palisades. And um, I heard Chuck C. speaking that night. He was the main speaker. And at the end of that week, I heard Clancy speaking at Rodale. So I was really bombarded by two powerful members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, part in the... You know, they said something, you know, two very fine speakers and men who knew and know a great deal about this program and about the nature of alcoholism. So I was very privileged because I was given a crash course in this program. I mean, just those two speakers. But that night, something had happened to me in Palisades. I, I met a friend who came over to me when I came through the door and he's sitting here tonight. He became my sponsor and close friend, Bob. And he said, how are you, Tony? He said, uh, we worked together about a year ago. And I said, yeah. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm an alcoholic. I said, I think I am too. He said, good. He said, you know, there's a seat over here for you. 
And George and Bob sat on either side of me, and Chuck C. spoke. And I, I thought that Chuck C. had been sort of organized to speak directly to me, because that's what his power was. He spoke directly to you. And I was in a room, not as big as this, but I was in a room full of people who were just like me. And the, what I'm trying to get at is what happened that night was it was, a, it was a complete turning point, because I'd always felt completely alien and outside. I felt like I was outside the chicken wire, looking in at the playground, because that was the reality of my life ever since I was a little kid. I've been blessed and cursed with a kind of um, eidetic memory, I suppose, a visual memory I can remember way back. It's not a curse. I, I'm, I feel so terribly gifted to be given a memory where I can remember details in vivid color. And in, I remember dates right back to the age of six years of age. I can tell all kinds of things where I was in certain parts of the year and all that, going back to about 1940s. So I had this very keen visual sense of my own life going way back. And I always had that peculiar feeling that I didn't belong anywhere. My first day at school, I was four years of age, four years and two months old, and I knew that I was on the wrong planet because all the other kids seemed to group together and I couldn't join anything. I couldn't join in any group. I couldn't. It was physically impossible for me to. I mean, I was physically and psychologically and emotionally incapable of being part of anything. I was like a magnet, a repelling magnet. I couldn't get near anything. I'd, I'd, I'd be pushed aside. Something with me would push me aside. And, uh, and that feeling stayed with me right into my adult years. I became an actor because I thought that would help me uh, in my sense of self-confidence or whatever. And I became an actor by accident, really, and a series of mishaps, I thought. that I look back on it now, it seemed to be a peculiar destiny. It was the only thing that made me feel that I would belong somehow in the world, I thought if I could become successful and I could become and achieve a great deal of this, that, and the other, I thought, well, that would fix me. And to a degree, I, it did fix me to a point. There were little, you know, it satisfied my ego. It helped me um, feel that I was accomplishing things. I was a workaholic. I would work longer than anyone else. I'd be at rehearsals three hours before anyone else could get there so that I could outsmart and outwit everyone else. And then nobody could cross me or criticize me, because if they dared do that, I'd snap their heads off. And I thought I was very smart, and at the same time, I realized I was just garbage. I mean, I just had no sense of belonging, I had no sense of identity, no sense of any self-esteem at all. And I felt like I was one great sob. I felt like I was on the edge of tears all my life. And I don't regret any of it, because it's been the most enriching experience. I can't regret it, because it's the reality of my life. And when I was about, I don't know, 16, 17 or something, I, I started drinking, like everyone else did in England at that age. And I, I got away with it for some time. I didn't uh, get into any serious problems with it. I started drinking quite heavily in the 1960s. I, I was in the, I did my, what we call in England, military service, or what you call the draft here. And I, I, I didn't drink regularly or Saturday nights because I couldn't afford it. But I didn't get drunk, I didn't get smashed. It was in the beginning of the 1960s when I, really pursued a career in the acting profession, in the theatre, I remember the real acute feelings of being on the outside, and at the same time feeling that I could be better than anyone else, that I could be better than you, better than them, and I, I really didn't like anyone very much, because I was scared of them, I was frightened. So that's basically what I felt, was just fear, crippling fear, and anxiety, and isolation. And in the 60s, I went away to a, a kind of acting academy or school, whatever you want to call it, uh, the Royal Academy. And I, I started drinking heavily there, but I managed to stay the course. I think, like all alcoholics, I'm a great survivor. We're all survivors. And I don't know how the hell I survived, but I survived. And I drank 
enough to put me away. And I drank for 15 years. And I was never a spectacular drinker. There's nothing uh, exotic about my story. Um, it's a pretty dull, dreary, long, boring toothache. That's what it feels like. <laughs> it was just sad, rambling, morose, and tearful. <laughs> and that was it. There was no Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne drinking for me. I mean, they had good scripts anyway, but I mean, they... Uh, and I, living in London in the 60s, I hated the 60s. I mean, I don't remember much about the 60s, the worst, the worst decade of my life. Everything to do with the Beatles or Mick Jagger or the Beatles or whatever. You know, I, I hated it all. I couldn't stand it. I loathed it. I loathed the 60s. I think because everyone said they were free and I didn't feel free at all. I felt imprisoned and lonely. And, uh, and it was a time in the London theatre scene where everyone was very nasty it was the sort of post-John Osborne era when everyone was very angry and vicious and vile and seemed to be very successful. So I thought, well, I'd join in with them and I'd become vicious and vile and nasty like them. But I kept falling over, you know, and getting lost in the men's room, you know. So <laughs> I'm not your regular two-fisted drinker. I'm a, my capacity was pretty small, you know. I just didn't uh, have my threshold um, of tolerance was, was poor, I'm glad to say. And that feeling I could never throw off, the feelings of being out of place, out of kilter, and on the outside, never left me. And they grew more intense, and the more intense those feelings became, the more ambitious I became, and the more rigid in my demands on myself and on everyone else. I was like, a, I was a fiend to work with, so I say, I mean, people I've checked in with since and made amends to say I wasn't that bad. It seems to be the alcoholic story that when we make amends, people say, oh, well, you didn't drink that much, you know, or, you know, you weren't that bad. And that's my experience. You know, I've gone back and I've over the road and talked to people and say, I'm sorry, but, you know, made amends to them. And they say, well, you know, I'm glad you're better. I mean, you didn't drink that much. You're, you're not an alcoholic, really, so I don't argue with them. Because, you know, I guess we've all gone through that. But I just had to fill in the hole in myself by working myself really to death, kind of just working and, and, and pushing myself to reach success and uh, achievement and so on and so forth. And, of course, the drinking got worse. And in 1974, I came to New York to do a play. I, I discovered the American bar, because in England we have licensing hours, or we used to. You can only drink for certain hours in the day. They've removed those laws now and changed them. But anyway, in New York, I found the magic of the American bar. And I'd also become very addicted to tequila. And I'd never drunk tequila in England, but I found it in America. In fact, I found it the year before. I was here in 1973, and I discovered tequila. And I couldn't wait to get back to America. I wasn't interested in the career anymore. I was just interested in getting back to America. <laughs> so I'd been working somewhere out here in California, and I, I'd, uh, that tequila did wonders for me. I mean, it unzipped my mind. I hallucinated. I went on kind of, I suppose they were like acid trips. I started seeing things that weren't there, and I started having strange quasi-religious experiences, which was very odd <laughs> for an alcoholic, for an atheist, or an agnostic. And I went back to England, and I couldn't wait to get back to America, not to do a play or to act. I just wanted to get hold of tequila. I didn't have the sense to go to the bar, uh, to the local bar. I don't think they so sold it in England in those days. But as soon as I got back to New York, it was in August 1974, August the 14th. I always remember it. We arrived at the hotel, my wife and I, the Algonquin Hotel, and I had a week before rehearsal started, and I went straight down to the bar and got smashed on tequila. And I came back up to the room about hours later, and I said, I think I've found the right alcohol for me. I think it, it really works for me. And then I fell over and passed out. <laughs> and I spent 
the rest of the evening hallucinating, and I couldn't wait to get back to the bar the next morning and start again. And then I uh, turned up at my first, there was a party given for the cast of this play on the first night in this producer's flat, and I turned up smashed out of my mind, and they looked at their, the man who was going to be playing this part in this play, and there I was drunk and rambling, and I told the author of the play what I thought of this play, really. And I, <laughs> and I said, where you went wrong is you should have rewritten this act, and he just nodded at me, and I told the director what was wrong with his work. And next day, uh, it's amazing how forgiving people are, you know, to us alcoholics. And next day I went into rehearsal, and I don't remember much about the night before, but people were very kind, and uh, they were very nervous of me, because they didn't know what to expect, because I, I you know, all they could see was this drunk, and they were, I was the only English actor, you know, they, they, you know I, uh, I was the only Englishman in this place, so they, they'd heard about the reputation of English people and their drinking, so they didn't know what to expect from me, um, this forward-on alcoholic. And there was a woman in that uh, company who was uh, is a member of AA, her name is Mary, and uh, she never said a word to me for eight months of that run. She smiled a lot at me, you know, and uh, she had a lovely smile, and uh, people told me that she was an alcoholic, and I felt very sorry for her. They say, well, she's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt even sorrier. And I noticed she smoked a lot, and I thought, well, she'd have to smoke to calm her nerves. If she can't take them, she's got to have something in her life for And she used to smile and smile, and she listened to all my dumb jokes, and I used to fool around on stage and all that. And I used to sometimes invite her to the bar with me over to Charlie's on 45th Street. And sometimes she would come with me, I think just to make sure I wasn't getting into too much trouble. And I, I think I had enough kind of respect for her that I didn't offer her a drink. But I'd ask her sometimes, I said, don't you drink at all? And she said, no. And she never said anything to me about why do I drink. She never did any of that. She was really a program of attraction. She, was, she really observed that, seventh, uh, that, that tradition. And she told her husband, who was also an alcoholic, she said, well, what do I do? And he said, let him die. And she, but, you know, he said, let him die. Let him do what he has to do. Don't interfere with his drinking. And I think, in a way, that's what got me. That's what really hooked me. Because one night in New York, on my last night there, I was very drunk in a party, uh, the last six weeks, rather, than this party, and I'd, uh, uh, I'd been, somebody given me some, I don't know what, some grass I supposed to smoke as well, which wasn't my thing, but I was just a drinker. And I was in such bad shape, and I asked her for help. And we went out the next day, and she, we bought, had lunch, and she told me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and she told me the old story about the elevator going down from the top floor down to the basement, and I can get off at any time. I thought, why is she talking to me like this, you know? Does she think I'm an idiot? And does she think I'm a child? You know, explaining it in Mickey Mouse pictures. But that's what she had to do. And she said, uh, would you like to come to a meeting? I said, no. But I said, I, I think I can do it on my own. She said, well, good. And she gave me that smile that alcoholics give, you know, recovering all this. It's fine. <laughs> She reminds me of something like those, uh, those musical films, you know, Julie Andrews, you know, always smiling. <laughs> she said, well, good luck. And, uh, you know, I had six weeks and I did it on my own. I, and I, uh, everything started looking good. I started losing weight and I felt very fit. I had a little bit of grass in between, and, uh, but I didn't drink. I drank gallons of tonic water. I couldn't drink and I was just drinking gallons of that stuff. And things seemed okay. They seemed fairly comfortable. On my last day... There was a little party in between the matinee and the evening performance, and there was some wine. I felt just one wine. I took that wine. And she was there, and she just watched that wine go down. She smiled even more. <laughs> now I went to another party that night, a farewell party. I was coming out here to Los Angeles the next day. It was July 1st. I've got a memory for dates. 
And uh, it was a big party, and um, there was a lot of booze around, and I'd been drinking Coca-Cola, whatever it was. And I thought, well, it's six weeks, you know. What's the problem? I don't have a problem with alcohol. How can I be an alcoholic of six weeks feeling great? I'd even given up smoking, I think. So, you know, that's how cunning it is. The little boy said, Tony, you've got no problem, you know. You don't smoke, you don't drink. I'm what's the matter with you? Come on, you can have a drink. So I did the inevitable, and I took, poured some whiskey into that Coke, and I drank that. And next day, I woke up in a strange bed with about four people. <laughs> we were all drunk, so nothing happened. We were all so unconscious, I didn't know where I was. My wife, dutiful to the end, waited for me to get back home. And we got on the plane midday and flew out to Los Angeles, and I felt terrible. I felt I'd so let myself down. I felt such self-disgust. And I had another valiant try at uh, another few days of sobriety or being dry. And I went to a July 4th party up in Palisades and I, at somebody's house. And uh, I was really trying my best to not drink. And I remember there was a friend of ours, a well-meaning, irritating nightmare of a woman. She's one of my close friends, but I wanted to kill her. She, so I, so I had my Coca-Cola, and I was about to pour the whiskey in it. She said, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> you do that to an alcoholic. I wanted to take her head off. <laughs> anyway, she was doing it for my good. But eventually, within a few days, I, I, was, I started a television thing here, and a woman I was working with I was drinking tequila. She said on the first days, at the end of, first, end of the first day's work, she said, would you like a drink? I said, no, I better go home. I had a flat in uh, an apartment in Westwood. I said, no, I better go home. Um, she said, would you like, you know, just a little drink? And uh, she had a paper cup, a polystyrene cup. I said, well, no, I, I better not because I think I've got a bit of a, you know, I'm trying to stay off the booze. I'm trying to stay off the drink. And uh, she said, well, mum won't hurt you. I said, well, what is it? She said, tequila. <laughs> and I can remember the ice in this paper. It was the, something to do with the paper cup that made it attractive. We were on the street in Century City, I remember. And it was that cup and the ice. And she will have it. I took it. I remember drinking it all back. And six months later, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> because it was the worst time of my life. Those last six months. It was the worst and the best time, really. And that's what I drank for the last six months. And that's what I did. I drank and drank and drank. And I, I'm very grateful to tequila because it made me hallucinate it really punched my head in. And it was the champ, you know, and I... Fortunately, I learned in the end not to get back in the ring with the champ because it killed me. And I... My wife left in Christmas 75 to go back to England to see her folks because she'd had enough. I think she was not technically leaving me, but she wanted to get out of the way and let me die if that's what I wanted. And she was one of those, by nature, almost a candidate for Al-Anon. By nature... She didn't interfere. By nature, she had an instinct not to nag me, not to teach me a lesson. But she'd had enough. I could hear her crying sometimes in the morning. And that really killed me when I could hear her weeping, see the puffy eyes, you know. Because she couldn't cope. She didn't know what the hell was wrong with me. I remember what she brought home. She thought, well, maybe she could help me. She brought a big bottle of wine in Westwood. And she said, let's try and make that last a month. Well, I... I said, why? 
because she drinks, you know, she has a glass of wine and she does all those weird things that non-alcoholics do. She tastes it. it swells it around her mouth. I don't know why she doesn't spit it out, but I mean, she tastes it. She smokes a cigarette, two cigarettes a day. Doesn't even inhale it. I mean, she's really weird. I always get a laugh. No, she, she is very strange. And uh, her, her, her drinking habits are as weird to me as mine were to her. And she brought this big bottle of wine. She let's try and make that last month. Anyway, it was gone in a, a night. And she said, that went very quickly, didn't it? And I said, yeah. I used to look at her. I thought, this woman's dumb. She's so stupid. That's what she mean? Keep it a month. And she'd say things, where did that wine go? I said, well, I drank it. Where did that bottle of whiskey go? I drank it. I thought, why is she asking me these dumb questions? So that's what it's there for, to drink. And she came back. She went back to London and uh, to see her parents. And I went off to... New Mexico, because somebody told me about Carlos Castaneda and uh, the magic mushrooms. Because <laughs> I wanted to get anything I could to change my, to change my feelings, because my time was running out with alcoholism, with alcohol. And I made it as far as Arizona, and I got to Phoenix on Christmas Day, and I phoned her up, my wife, I phoned her in England to wish her a happy Christmas, and she did the thing which I suppose was the beginning. She said, where are you? I said, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. She said, oh, what are you doing there? I said, I just came down. She said, oh, well, have a nice time. And she put the phone down. She was telling me to get lost, really. And I knew that I was losing everything I'd ever cherished and ever wanted in my life. And I came back via Palm Springs, and I stopped off there for a few nights and got really smashed and loaded. And I was, by this time, in serious state because I was hallucinating, and I was having images and terrible sort of frightened reactions and jumping out of my skin and I couldn't breathe. And I managed to get back on the 27th of December and uh, Saturday night and um, I went to a party and um, up in Beverly Hills somewhere and a lot of people in show business there and I was under somebody's piano, drunk and sick and to death and uh, mad. And uh, I lost my car. And that's what got me. I turned to the sir, I said, I've lost my car. He said, well, you lost it because you drove up here crazy and then you went back and left the car in the middle of the street when we came and got you. That's all I can rec recollect at that moment. And I said, I said, well, I'm an alcoholic and I need help now. I went back to this fellow's house and he phoned, he got me a piece of paper with a number of Alcoholics Anonymous and then I had Sunday on my own to think about it. It's very dangerous. But I did think about it and I was devastated and I've never felt such burning self-pity and burning anger because I was so alone. I'd lost my wife, I thought, permanently. I'd lost the chance of everything that I ever wanted in my life. And the next morning, on Monday, fortunately, I didn't think too much to think myself out of doing it. And I phoned up central office and I went in and I saw this woman and um, she told me that somebody would pick me up and take me to a meeting. And she told me about God. She said, just trust in God. And I thought, everything I've thought of in my life, everything I've tried to put together in my ill, sick thinking, all my self-knowledge, which isn't much, my pathetic little attempts at self-knowledge, a little bit of self-education, I tried to read this. I never had the attention span to read anything. I never actually got over my childhood. Somebody, Bob, told me that one. He said, you know, we recovered in our different ways. I never actually recovered from that period of my life. I felt trapped all my life in childhood. I never actually made... I'd never made the brick. I'd never wiped the slate clean and grown up. And I went to that meeting that night and I heard Chuck C. speaking and I heard 
two, another alcoholic before Chuck speaking that night, and I sat in that room between Bob and George, and I looked around and I thought, everyone here knows how I feel, because you have all felt exactly as I felt all my life. I thought I had to get my act together. I thought I had to find a book of truth about life, and somehow, somehow I was dyslexic about this book, or somehow I couldn't grasp anything you were talking about, until I came into AA that night, and then I could grasp what you were talking about. For the first time I understood what other human beings were talking about. And I'm not trying to dramatize it or exaggerate it, but it's amazing what this miraculous program does. I don't know how many newcomers are here tonight. I know there are, I saw some hands, but it is the most astounding program. I've been 16 years, just over 16 years sober, and I'm more astounded than ever now. I'm more baffled than ever, because I think sobriety is cunning, baffling, and powerful as well. Because sometimes I think, well, this is so good. Maybe, maybe there's something in my coffee I'm taking. Maybe there's something... I, sometimes I feel so good I think I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> I don't, don't mean goody-goody, but I, I feel life is so good. The fears have gone. The fears have diminished. I get moments of anxiety and moments of fear, I suppose. But it's mostly gone. And I work with people, I'm in my, my business, there are lots of alcoholics around and uh, practicing alcoholics and drug addicts in my, in my field of work, in acting. And I'm working at the moment here, and I've just finished work on uh, something here, and uh, I'm working with a couple of people who are very crazy and uh, talented and, you know, a little out to lunch. And I, I know that it's none of my business to interfere, just to be there and be of help if I can be. And I look into the face of this other guy I'm working with, and I see myself 20 years ago. And I know what he's going through, all the craziness and all the violence and the anger and the rage. And there's nothing I can do. I have no power. And he knows about me. He knows that I'm a member of this program. And sometimes he comes by and wants to talk, and he talks and he stands and he runs away. Because I think he thinks I'm going to lay something on him, but I don't. But I'm so grateful to be... I'm a very... I, I'm so grateful to be a member of this really privileged program because it's, uh, it's the most expensive club in the world, you know. We paid our dues to get in here. I am really lately kind of overwhelmed, really overwhelmed with gratitude because I should have been dead and wiped out years and years ago. I've been given back everything I've ever dreamed of in abundance. What I put into the program has been so fully replenished and given back to me hundred times more than I could ever dream of. Constantly, lately, driven back to look back into the past, not to dwell on it, but to make a, amends to it in a way. To be thankful for the past. I don't regret any of it now. I had problems with my father before he died. My father was a periodic alcoholic and he was, he could press all my buttons before he died and all that. And I, I, I remember I went down to see, uh, down to the roundup in Palm Springs and I saw Chuck C because I was in a lot of pain at the time and I was going through a lot of craziness ten years ago. A real, I was completely out of, out of lunch. I'd been sober a number of years then. And Chuck C. said to me, he said, write to your father. Write him a letter. I said, but he's dead. He said, well, still write him. And he gave that funny laugh, you know. He said, still write him. And he said, it'll make you feel better. And I did. I wrote him a letter. I, thought that I felt weird writing him a letter, but I wrote him a letter. I said, I know that you did the best you could, and I forgive you, and I hope you can forgive me. And that worked. And it seems that my life has been one of the last few years of going back and cleaning up the slate, just wiping the slate clean, making amends to people, not because I've chosen it that way, but because I've been put in people's paths in that way. I've had chances to rework with people that I'd offended or hurt, and um, all I can want to hear myself say is that I'm so grateful 
I can't really express it. It's a great privilege being an alcoholic. I'm very glad I'm an alcoholic. I wouldn't want it any other way. I've found friendship and love beyond measure. I can't talk to people who are not alcoholics. I have lots of friends who are not alcoholics and I love them very much. But there's a, a, there's a point of stalemate in talking because I know that there's nothing more to talk about. If I can sit and talk with an alcoholic or we can sit and talk for hours and hours and hours, as we all do. Nobody really listens, it seems, but we all talk. <laughs> it seems to be a never-ending journey, deeper and deeper. I was in Salt Lake City about two years ago and I was looking for a meeting on a Sunday morning and I, 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 and there was, I found a meeting in this little book there and it, said up, it was on the campus in Salt Lake City. So I drove the car up there and I was lost and I, it was a very sort of beautiful day looking over Salt Lake City. And I, there was a big complex, a hospital and I don't know, and a college and all that was going on there and a few cars parked but I couldn't find the AA meeting and I saw four people, two men, two women walking ahead of me. And even by the way they were walking and talking, I knew they were alcoholics. <laughs> because they were talking loudly, you could hear them all over the place. <laughs> I said, is this way to the AA meeting? Yeah, it's down there. What's your name? Oh, Tony. <laughs> I said, oh, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Nobody's got energy like us. You know, it is fantastic. I made some wonderful friends. I come back here to Los Angeles and the car drives itself automatically. I know where I am. It's like I'm home all the time. I don't really know where I live. I live in London. I, that's my geographical address, I guess. But I'm always here in my heart because this is where I met myself. This was the greatest moment of my life. 16 years ago was the greatest singular event in my life to discover that I was an alcoholic and that I always had been. And I found myself here and uh, it's been the most miraculous event of my life. And it gets better and better and deeper and deeper. Somebody asked me Thanksgiving, um, just before Thanksgiving on this work I'm doing. They said, would you like a drink? I said, no, not just a beer. I said, no, I've got to start work next Monday, so. <laughs> I always tell them that. They said, well, I don't understand. I said, no, neither do I. <laughs> but again, I just say it's a great privilege to be asked to speak here, to see you all. Thank you, Rita. It's great to see Clancy again and all of you again and old friends. Thank you for my life. <laughs>